Welcome to BioCentury This Week, the podcast with BioCentury's editorial team talking biotech. I'm Jeff Cranmer, executive editor of BioCentury, and joining me today are my colleagues. Lauren Martz, executive director of Biopharma Intelligence. Selena Koch, executive editor. And Stephen Hansen, director of Biopharma Intelligence. On today's podcast, innate immunity gets another shot at cancer through ADCs. Bringing psychedelics into the drug development fold. The year's start for IPOs is mostly strong. We look at the latest pair of companies to get out. And the latest in M&A, a multi-billion dollar takeout by Gilead. But first, anti-China biotech bills are raising alarms at U.S. biotechs. CEOs are worried they could lose access to CDMOs, Wuxi Aptech, and Wuxi Biologics, and that legislation could imperil collaboration with Chinese companies more broadly. Bio has warned Congress the bills would immediately and negatively affect the U.S. biotech ecosystem. On a special edition of the BioCentury This Week podcast, this Wednesday, BioCentury Washington editor Steve Usden joins me to discuss the pending legislation. BioCentury subscribers can access the podcast via our website, biocentury.com, and other listeners can go to biocenturypodcastspecial.com for access. All right. Antibody drug conjugates are the modality of the moment in oncology. Now, a new twist on the tech aims to use it to stimulate immune responses in the tumor environment. Lauren, tell me about these ADCs. Uh, Are they different than the ones at the center of the many deals we've been seeing lately? Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, so the concept of immunomodulatory ADCs or immunostimulatory ADCs, I guess, isn't necessarily new, but the main difference between the traditional ADCs that you see is the payload. So these are often delivering innate immune stimulators, you know, the sting agonists and the toll-like receptor agonists. And this idea, I think, has been around for a few years. So we learned several years ago that these innate immune stimulators are, are really just too toxic, at least in most cases, to deliver systemically. So, you know, this kind of emerged at the same time that cytotoxic standard ADCs were really starting to gain a footing. And the idea of using a targeted antibody to make these more selectively target the tumor microenvironment is something that makes sense. I think the basic concept here is that you want to localize this innate immune signal to the tumor microenvironment, and there you can have a different effect than you would have with something like a checkpoint inhibitor or something that targets the adaptive immune system. Wondering if you could tell us a little bit about um, how different these kinds of ADCs have to be or what can be ported over from a traditional ADC. So a linker of the same sort of strength for a traditional ADC, is that going to work for one carrying sting or does it need to be a tighter linker that doesn't let go as easily, you know, stuff like that? Yeah. So what I learned from speaking with these companies is that when you add an innate immune stimulator payload to a traditional IDC design, there could be problems. You know, it's much more complicated than that. 
As far as the linker goes, I mean, I think generally the idea now is that you want an ADC, regardless of the payload, at least with the two that we've discussed here, to stay attached when you're in circulation. But with a traditional ADC, you know, the idea is that you want it to stay together in circulation, target a tumor cell, be internalized, you know, very efficiently, release the payload inside the tumor, and then once the tumor cell is killed, disperse the payload so that you can, you know, kill the neighboring cells as well through um, that bystander effect. So one of the differences here is that in some cases, depending on what the payload is, you might not actually want the ADC to be internalized in the tumor cell if the goal is to deliver one of these immune stimulators to the innate immune response, for example. In other cases, you know, you might not want the payload to disperse once the cell is killed because there's a lot of skepticism about whether or not an ADC structure is actually going to solve the safety issues with innate immune stimulators because they are so toxic. Um, we know with the traditional ADCs that a lot of it still does get into circulation. So if you have a payload that can't pass into another cell that doesn't permeate cell membranes, that might be an added safety advantage that, that some companies are exploring. There are a lot of next generation designs in development. I think we'll see a lot of proof of concept this year. Hey, Lauren. Um, so for cytotoxic ADCs, you know, the traditional design, I think we've kind of come to find that typically kind of more drug usually equals better efficacy in terms of the antibody to drug ratio there. Is that going to translate over to the immunostimulatory payload, do you think? Or how, how are they thinking about that with respect to the payload? Yeah, Stephen, I think, again, it's very case by case, and it's going to depend on the specific payload. But I know that some companies are going for a lower drug to antibody ratio. You know, you have fewer payload molecules attached to the antibody just to improve safety. But then, you know, there are also companies that are trying to put chemotherapy and an immune stimulator on the same ADC. And in those cases, and in some of just these immunostimulatory ADCs in general, I think it's as much about where the payloads are placed on the molecule as it is about the ratio of antibody to drug. So you have a lot of these site-specific conjugation technologies that can be important for how the drug is released and uh, controlling that process. So with the differences in the design strategies here, what are companies going after first? You know, what, what's kind of their first indication strategy? Is it different than what we've seen from traditional ADCs? So I think a lot of it is the same. As I mentioned, there may be differences in the targets that you want to use. You know, if you don't want to be internalized into a tumor cell, you might not want to target um, a receptor on the tumor cell surface that readily internalizes. So that's one difference. But in a lot of cases, internalization is still important. The other issue is that immune stimulating ADCs may work by bringing more immune cells, more T cells into the tumor microenvironment. So there's a theory that you might actually be able to use these in cold tumors where checkpoint inhibitors may not work, for example. And so some of the initial ADC indications fall into that category. A lot of breast cancers are, are relatively cold. HER2 positive breast cancer is probably going to be a popular target for this type of ADC as well. It'll be interesting to see where these can move. Psychedelics are going mainstream in biotech. Years of stigma have given way to big expectations for the therapeutic power 
of these drugs in a variety of mental health contexts. Selena, uh, you spent many hours up at JPM uh, last month talking to neuro companies and took a long, strange trip into the space. What are the take-home messages for drug developers and investors looking into psychedelics? Yeah, well, first I just have to say, this is always a kind of a fun area to cover, just because it's the unlikely sort of development of the counterculture meeting mainstream drug development. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I think, so there's classical psychedelics that cause like hallucinations and delusions, things like magic mushrooms from which you get the compound psilocybin, or LSD, but there's also this broader class of psychoactive drugs that often get lumped together under the umbrella of psychedelics. So in that larger class, right, uh, there are things like ketamine and MDMA, and you saw Johnson & Johnson kind of blazing a trail that helped to bring on this new era of excitement with a version of ketamine. Now, we saw some of the challenges of psychedelics present themselves in that paradigm, where because these drugs are so powerfully psychoactive, people are out of it while they're on them. And they can't just take one as a pill and go to work or something, right? So they require physician monitoring during the experience. And that can be disruptive to routines. Obviously, you have to go in, it takes time, big chunk of a day. In the case of ketamine, it's about two hours, but ketamine has to be taken quite frequently. What these next generation psychedelics are aiming to do is have very limited treatment sessions, one, two, or three kind of thing. And they, they actually, it's longer. It's going to take the whole day, basically. Um, but the hope is that at the end of those two or three sessions, you're good for quite a long time. So, Celine, I, I think you referenced in your story that a lot of these therapies require some level of sort of psychotherapy or that traditionally sort of before this psychotherapy and psychedelic sort of pharmacotherapy had kind of been integrated together. Um, but there still will be some need for psychotherapy sort of for these going forward. So you know, how does that complicate sort of the drug development process for these therapies? Yeah. So in the MDMA field. Um, You see the first company there is MAPS, which recently rebranded as Lycos. They have a MDMA psychotherapy combination under review at FDA right now. So they tested sessions of MDMA and sessions of psychotherapy together as a package. And at the end of that process, it's really hard for anyone to know, for FDA or anyone else to know, what amount of the efficacy that they measure comes from the talk therapy versus the drug. And when FDA put out its guidance on this class of therapies, psychedelics, it raised that as an issue. They said it makes it really hard to know for labeling, right? Drug labeling. And so now these next set of companies, which are more focused on psilocybin than MDMA, which it's a little harder to do talk therapy when somebody's on psilocybin, <laughs> they're a little more out of it. Uh, but anyway, they for that reason, and also because of FDA's guidance, they've tried to distance themselves from that technique. At the same time, people are in a very vulnerable state and they feel that they need some kind of psychological support. And so they've tried to come up with these, what they call psychological support systems that don't deliver active therapy that should convey efficacy, but are there as like a safety rail. Okay. So what they're trying to do there is to say, any efficacy you see is going to be from the psilocybin. It's not going to be from a therapy, from a talk therapy. 
but it doesn't alleviate this problem of the kind of high touch, complicated therapeutic process because uh, Compass Pathways and Cybin, kind of two of the leaders in, in psilocybin, they are both giving preparation sessions ahead of the therapeutic experience, the psychedelic experience. Then they're giving support during the experience, and then they're doing some integration work afterward. <laughs> so it's still uh, delivering that in the real world, I think is still a big question, like how how is that going to be done efficiently? And is this is the need for that going to make them niche products? Because what they re all really want, like depression is a massive indication. We're talking millions of people, right? They don't want to be cornered, pigeonholed as a niche product. They want to be able to treat a large number of people. But how you treat a large number of people when you have this sort of high touch sort of system is kind of remains to be seen. Right. And I think you mentioned, obviously, you know, to start all of these um, issues in terms of having, you know, monitoring while the uh, patients go through their experiences. <laughs> One of the challenges there also is, right, trying to drag this into a more traditional drug development process is that running a placebo controlled trial can be a bit tricky when the patients are functionally sort of unblinding themselves when one of them knows whether they're getting uh, magic mushrooms or not. So um, yeah. I mean, is, there, is there any way to control for that or how, you know, how are regulators sort of thinking about that? Yeah, there's no real way to control for it. Here's the, the arguments that the companies will make. The arguments will make, they'll make are drugs that act on the CNS often have perceptual creates perceptual changes that are detectable. They'll say this is not what they say is this is not a new problem. But it's a little bit of a just disingenuous argument, I think, because it's a really big problem with psychedelics. We're not talking about some subtle clue that might make you think maybe I'm in the treatment arm. You're like, you get this thing, you know you got the treatment. So it's just a much clearer signal. So functional unblinding is 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 a challenge. And um FDA does address it in its guidance and it says it is open to companies designing trials with active comparators. So if you can find something else that is psychoactive, but doesn't work by the same mechanism and you don't expect it to necessarily have an antidepressant effect or an anti-anxiety effect, they're open to you testing your psychedelic against that to mitigate this effect. But then you run into a problem with safety. FDA is very clear that they think the best way to determine to get clean safety data is to have a placebo control. So Compass, and it's two phase three trials. One of them is placebo controlled. The other one, they're actually testing just three doses of psilocybin, where not just what they think is the therapeutic high dose, but also at least the medium dose is should be detectable perceptually by some number of patients. The, uh, the I guess the uh, the concept of a psychedelic placebo is quite uh, quite an interesting one, um, but I mean, can you dissociate the the psychedelic experience from the efficacy? I mean, yeah. is, uh, that would seem to be the cleaner approach, right? That's the big outstanding question, right? So what you see is MDMA, ketamine, psilocybin, LSD, all starting to show that they might have some effect. They all work by different mechanisms and they all work by many mechanisms, right? These aren't like the cleanest, most precise drugs. So that might argue that it's really just jogging your brain out of whatever loop you're caught in, kicking it out of its local minima into some other state gives you an opportunity to settle back down into something different 
outside of that pattern. In which case, yeah, it's that intense psychedelic experience you, you might need. And this is what Simon and Compass, they would definitely argue, you can't dissociate these things. But not everyone agrees. <laughs> so there's this company called Delix, which really thinks what happens when you take a psychedelic, you open this critical period for neural and synaptic plasticity, where you can get regrowth of lost dendrites, make new synaptic connections in the places that matter for these types of mental health conditions, you know, like the prefrontal cortex, for instance. And they have this whole phenotypic screening platform set up where they, they first, they start with a scaffold that is MDMA or some other psychedelic. They do a bunch of chemistry, evolve, you know, the molecule away from that, make a bunch of them and then test them to find ones that will induce the same kind of plasticity, but give no psychedelic side effect. This is their goal. They think they have some of these. They're taking one into phase two now. So their hypothesis is that they can be dissociated and that as long as you get that critical period opening up for plasticity and then presumably do whatever work one needs to do, <laughs> that you'll get the efficacy. But you'll have just a, a standard drug at the end of that, right? Something that fits neatly into the payer and medical system that we have today. And avoids a lot of the complexities uh, that the other ones face in terms of trial design and that sort of thing as well. Exactly. Yep. All right. Thanks for that, Selena. I think you might have slipped in some lyrics from Sturgill Simpson's Turtles All the Way Down in there. Um, so Selena's analysis of the psychedelic space, along with Lauren's ADC story, are up on biocentry.com. And hey, our Biocentry Bay Helix East-West Biopharma Summit, which we put on with the help of McKinsey is just around the corner. It'll be in Singapore in early March. We'd love to have you there. We'll take a quick break so you can hear about it. This March, Biocentry, Bay Helix, and Insights partner, McKinsey & Company, bring the third East-West Biopharma Summit to Singapore, the gateway to Asia. At the summit, you will get a first-hand look at how the smart money pouring into Singapore plans to scale up the emerging life sciences ecosystem. You will also meet the key players from Asia's innovation arc, from India through Southeast Asia to China, Korea, and Japan. If you are a biopharma executive looking for partners or investors, or a life sciences investor looking for portfolio companies or limited partners, now's the time to meet Asia leaders face-to-face -face in Singapore. Register today at biocentryeastwest.com. All right, we're back. And if you do want to learn more about the summit, BiocenturyEastWest.com has all you need to know. Steven, well, when you and I aren't slacking biotech, we are slacking football. And while I know your cup of Gatorade is more of a Tottenham Spurs or Minnesota Vikings variety, how about that Patrick Mahomes yesterday? <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it's a good game. I, I actually, uh, so I'm based in the UK, so I actually stayed up till four in the morning to watch that game. Which the fourth quarter and the overtime, I think, was was worth it, I guess. But um, yeah, I was uh, I was asleep by four or three, so I uh, <laughs> I didn't make it much longer. But yeah, quick maybe a quick shout out to uh, Brad Longcar, our uh, sort of the biotech local uh, Chiefs uh, fan. So uh, congratulations to him. Excellent. I have to say, uh, I know I'm a San Franciscan, and I'm supposed to be like rooting for the 49ers or whatever they're called. 
<laughs> I'm, not sport, I'm not a sports fan. But the last time our baseball team, who are they're the Giants, right? The, yeah. The Giants, one yeah. one so their big game, I think World Series. Anyway, there were like cars overturned in town and stuff. Like you, you uh, happy that they didn't win just yeah. for the uh, lack of destruction. Were, it, yeah. Exactly. People were, like came out sort of down and they didn't like turn over cars and vandalize <laughs> but, my but city. But you did but. say there were still some fireworks, yeah. So uh, there were a lot of fireworks last night, yeah. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Uh, on the M&A front, Gilead has added a liver disease candidate via the $4.3 billion takeout of Sima Bay. Uh, quick thoughts, Stephen? Uh, yeah, just uh, quickly looking at the deal this morning. I mean, it just seems to fit, you know, where a lot of the M&A has been, right? So Sima Bay has a um, uh, PPAR agonist that uh, is under review for a primary Billionaire uh, cholangitis. I believe the review dates in August. So, you know, another late stage, uh, you know, ready to be commercialized product that, uh, you know, fits Gilead's liver disease sort of pipeline uh, pretty succinctly. So, seems like a good fit. 4.3 billion seems like a, I don't know, is that, I'm not sure how big the PBC market is, but um, it's interesting price point for, uh, you know, people thinking about how that market's going to develop. All right. And we had two more IPOs uh, last week on the U.S. markets. One up, one down in the aftermarket. That's uh, six total for the year, I believe. How are things stacking up, Stephen? Yeah. So, you know, I think I'm actually, I guess, overall, I would say, I think pretty pleasantly surprised with how the biotech IPO market has gone so far. I mean, as you say, four up, one of them from last week, uh, Kyverna Autoimmune Car T Company, raised, you know, upsized their IPO, priced above its range, was up in the aftermarket, you know, did really well. And then, sort of the uh, sort of the, the flip side of the coin was the uh, Metagenome, a preclinical sort of RNA, you know, gene editing company that unfortunately, you know, didn't do very well and was then down on the uh, in the aftermarket pretty heavily. And, you know, just kind of looking in more detail at the companies that have gotten out so far, sort of the one thing that just stuck out to me, it's not necessarily saying that this is the driving factor as to why we've had such differential performance here. But, you know, I just noticed that looking at, you know, Kyverna, CG Oncology, which was the first biotech to get out, they upsized their IPO, did well. AirEvent, the third best performing one so far this year, all three of those companies were almost exclusively, you know, supported by specialist biotech VCs. You know, almost all of their major shareholders pre-IPO were biotech specialist VCs. And then you look at the two companies that haven't done as well in IPO. So Fractal Health that had gone out earlier and Metagenome. Fractal Health had one specialist healthcare VC that were among their major pre-IPO holders, but the others were tech and generalist VCs. Um, Metagenome, while they did have specialist VCs that came into the later private rounds, None of them were sort of major shareholders, sort of ahead of the IPO, and you know, outside of I should say, outside of their um, strategic VCs that are their partners at Bayer and Moderna. Um, so I know it's only an end of two for those two, but I just I kind of makes me wonder, sort of raises the question, I guess, as to how much sort of their investors were able to support or participate in the IPO, as opposed to what we you know typically see with specialist VCs who often you know are insiders and participate in that IPO. So I, I don't know how much that may have contributed to the uh, aftermarket performance, but I just found it an interesting tidbit that sort of pointed me at least into one way that these companies have sort of, there's a differential in the way that they perform there. Well, I thought uh, Fractal choosing a, uh, a ticker 
named after Olivia Rodrigo's album, Guts, uh, would have been worth uh, a few percentage points. But uh, <laughs> Selena, I know you uh, you edited our story on the IPOs. How, how are the uh, IPOs stacking up like this year versus last year in terms of numbers? Oh, like last year to this like, date? to this point, yeah, yeah. there's twice as many. I think there were only three last year up to now. And the, so there's twice as many and they're performing better. All right. Well, yeah, we'll keep watching it. I mean, companies are looking to get out and they're getting out. So, well, Selena, Stephen, Lauren, thanks as always for joining and giving your thoughts. All of these stories are up on biocentry.com and appreciate you tuning in. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for Biocentry this week. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.